I'd like to thank uh, <coughs> Rabbi Rubenstein for that introduction, most of which was entirely untrue, but <coughs> that's why I asked him to do it. Um, let's try and examine the concept of free will from a formal Jewish perspective, and since the program has suggested that we'll, we should look at it in the context of the field of ethics and a basis for ethics, Let's try to pay a little attention to the problem of free will as we are encountering the Western secular mode and its method of dealing with this question. Let's see if we can try to clarify what is the correct and authentic or more authentic or more mature Jewish understanding of this subject and trying to gain some clarity because not only is this a very difficult subject to understand the question of free will, it is particularly difficult now because we are in an, a, a secular Western ethos which teaches very differently than we do. So let's see if we can try to, to clarify that, that polarization perhaps and fill out some of the areas of uh, <coughs> the deepest of Torah subjects. And if you have any questions after that, if I'm able to, I'm very happy to try to answer. First of all, a lot of material to cover. First of all, the reason that the subject is intrinsically difficult is because it's based in the deepest area of Torah thinking. Hesitate to use the word mystical, but the truth is that free will does live. The faculty of free will, the locus, if you like, of free will in the mind, is situated at the root of consciousness, and that place which has no prior elements. And to put it more plainly, the paradox of free will is that you never can ask why a free will decision is made. It's not a, not a legitimate question. That's the first paradox. If you ask why someone chose to do this or that in a moral ordeal, it's not a legitimate question. Because as soon as you ask why was this done, why did the person choose A or choose B, you're implying that there's a prior cause. And if there's a prior cause, then this decision was not free. So the mystical nature, if you like, or the paradoxical center of free will, is that it's justified in its own terms only. It can be understood only in its own terms. You make a free will decision because you made that decision, not because of anything else. And the secular mode now is teaching that you make your so-called free will decisions because that is the result of all your inputs. When you put together all your genetics and biochemistry and, and, and cultural influences and sociological, psychological, etc. influences, then this is the natural output, which of course means that you're not free. You're only acting out an output that is commensurate with the inputs. And we're forced into a position, you have, to, you, have to, you have to say, and it's correct from a Jewish perspective, to say that when you make a really free decision, you're making that decision because you made that decision and not because of any reason. Are we together so far? It's going to be a long morning. <laughs> So that's, that, that's intrinsically why the subject is difficult, because it is, the root of, it is the root of consciousness, and it is the point from which everything else flows. It's not the result of anything, it's the cause. The faculty of free will is located in a, in a, in a focus in the mind that we call ratzon. Ratzon in Hebrew means desire, or will, or volition. Free will, the free will decision is really only a manifestation of a volition that chooses to go in this direction or that. But the tool that's being used is, is ratzon. The word ratzon in Hebrew has the same numerical equivalent as the word makor, which means a source. 
which means it is the source of consciousness. There's nothing prior to that that causes this decision. And we'll have to explore that and examine it's not an easy subject. The second area, the second reason perhaps, that this is a difficult subject is because of the Western concept and the direction in which that is, that is moving. And I don't have to tell you, I'm sure you're aware, that in Western thinking, the, the position now is moving inexorably towards a position in which free will has very little part to play, and perhaps soon they'll get to a position where free will does not exist at all. In other words, the Western thinking now, if you can generalize about it, is that you really are not free. You really only manifest outputs or reactions, let's say, to all the inputs that are given. And of course, the underpinning for this theory, this thesis, is evolution. Since then, their conception, you are just an accidental biological organism, and all lower, so-called lower organisms, are, all their actions are predicated upon nothing other than the technical inputs. Therefore, when an amoeba does what it does, or a worm does what it does, or a plant turns towards the light, since there's no free will concept there, there's only a response to, to mechanical causes, so it follows that a human being, for all your sophisticated thinking about it, is really nothing other than a constellation of, of, of instincts which themselves are based on technical details, and therefore what you do is really no more meaningful in terms of its freedom than what a gorilla does, or a amoeba, or a worm, or a plot. And so we have to struggle against this from a spiritual point of view, and it's, it's, a, it's an impossible discussion. Because the center of free will from our perspective is something that cannot be understood in terms that are more primary. It makes it a very difficult subject. Let's try to spend a moment characterizing where the current secular position is on this matter, because it's, it's critical in order to understand the Jewish perspective. Today, if you read psychology and sociology and criminology, perhaps, in particular, you'll see that the intellectual position is moving, generally speaking, more in the direction of lack of free will. And the trend today is to say that people behave the way they do because of their inputs, whether those inputs are soft like psychological and sociological and cultural, or they are hardwired, as they put it, biological, genetic, biochemical. Nevertheless, those are the causes of the behavior. If you read journals of criminology, for example, you'll see that it's a popular research subject today to take people who manifest certain behavior, for example, violent criminal behavior. That's done in many other areas, homosexuality, various other areas of investigation, but one example will be enough for us. Today the trend is to take populations who manifest violent criminal behavior and try to show that they have a genetic or biochemical marker that correlates with that behavior. It's never been done effectively or conclusively, not for any particular type of behavior, but that's not the point. From a Jewish perspective, we could well accept that they may be able to demonstrate such biochemical or genetic markers. It wouldn't be a problem from a Jewish perspective. But let's for the moment assume that it could be done. So the trend is to say, well, this is a, this is a population of violent criminals, and we can show that there's a genetic, there's a statistically unbalanced element that we can pick up here, whether it's genetic or biochemical or whatever it is, but something we can measure, whether it's based in PET scans in the brain or whether it's whatever it is. The very strong implication of this work is that they are less responsible for the violent criminal behavior because there's a causative element, namely their genetics, the biochemistry. There's a challenging thought. We'll have to deal with it seriously from a Jewish perspective. 
if it could be shown that there are forces moving a particular population or individual in the direction of certain choices, if it could be shown, and I have no doubt that it could be, we'll have to deal with that seriously from a Jewish perspective because their tendency is to say, well, free will is really minimized because these are the causes. And theoretically, if they go all the way, they'll end up saying that this person is not free at all. The reason they acted violently in that situation is because their cultural, biochemical, genetic, etc. factors are really the cause. And of course, if they get to that position, there will be no such thing as justice. Because you can't really punish someone for doing something that is nothing other than a natural expression of what their mechanisms determine. You might be able to lock people up to keep them out of circulation because they're dangerous to other people, but you can't talk about punishment, you can't talk about morality or immorality. Where's the West at present? The West at present is somewhere midway between the two extremes. That means that if you, if, you, if you examine the situation carefully, you'll find that intellectually they are teaching more and more that there's no such thing as free will. That all human behavior is no different than biological behavior. But yet you'll see that in the inner sanctum of their consciousness, they still function as if there is free will with accountability. At the moment there's that paradox. When the professor of biology teaches his class that, that deep love between a man and a woman is nothing other than a technical biological mating instinct. It has no meaning. That which we call romantic love and deeper than that, genuine, real, long-term love, the meaning of a relationship, what in Judaism we call the sanctity of the relationship, he teaches his class that that's all ridiculous. That what happens between two human beings is no different than what the animals do in the jungle, just we have a more sophisticated chemistry that thinks about it differently, that's all. But when he comes home and finds that his wife has run off with the professor of the next door department, he doesn't say, there goes one more gorilla. <laughs> he doesn't say that because in his inalienably human heart, he understands that it's not like that. Of course, when he catches himself feeling that way, then he, then he rationalizes and he says, well, of course, this doesn't really have any intrinsic meaning, it's only biochemical. But something very deeply disturbs him, makes him uncomfortable about that because the human being in his, in his, in his non-technically thinking moments knows that there is, a, there is a meaning and there's a freedom. But of course in intellectual mode, that's not included. And you find many examples of this paradox, this, this dichotomy. It's, it's part of what fuels the, the problem of definition, distinction of definition between humans and animals. You know, that's a very confused area. In New Zealand some time ago, I don't know whether they carried it through in Parliament, but there was an attempt to vote into effect animal rights, chimpanzees, higher, higher apes, that they should have civil rights. Right? Civil rights. Why? Because we're only narrowly distinct from them in the evolutionary scale, and therefore if human beings have civil rights, then it follows that gorillas should have civil rights. And there was a serious move, whether it was passed or not, I lost track of the discussion, in the New Zealand Parliament to enact civil rights for Chimpanzee. Someone then got involved, someone then stood up in front of the parliament and said, what about rats? What about rats? If you give civil rights to gorillas, you know, why are you prejudiced against rats? Well, they're still thinking about that. But the point is that it's a serious question. It's a serious question. The distinction between an animal and a human is not a simple distinction. It will not be found in the technical, biochemical, genetic realm. It's not found there. It's only found in the root of consciousness in this particular dimension of freedom.
see when the police in New York are, they called, they get a, a panic-stricken call that there's a certain location in Upper Manhattan where there's some people who have a man tied to a table and they are cutting him up alive. So the police scream down there with their sirens blazing and they run into the room and it turns out to be the postgraduate anatomy dissection hall in Cornell University and what's tied to the table is a lightly anesthetized gorilla and the postgraduate students are dissecting this gorilla. So the policeman says to the student, why did you call us? You said that there was a man being cut up alive. So the student says, yes, officer, this creature here is a very close relative of mine. Now it's a very narrow schism between us in evolutionary terms. Our professor has taught us that we are very close cousins. Well, what happens is the policeman spits on the floor and he leaves because the policeman understands that a man's a man, a monkey's a monkey. But the professor of the department's in real trouble because he's been teaching his students that there's really no significant and intrinsic difference between us. And according to him, if you can do this to a gorilla or a chimpanzee, what's to stop you walking across the road into Central Park and picking up some homeless hobo and doing the same to him? Why not? And if it's wrong to do it to that hobo because he's human, then what gives you the right to do it to this poor, poor animal? And there's no intellectual answer to that. There's no Western approach to that yet. And of course, it's, it, this is finding its expression, this non-distinction between humans and animals is going further and further. A friend of Rabbi Rumestein's and, and, and mine was traveling recently by air. And the lady next to him was served a, a, a vegetarian meal. So he thought maybe she was Jewish, the young rabbi. So he said to her, oh, are you also Jewish? So the lady turned out not to be Jewish. She was a very proud vegetarian, very idealistic vegetarian. So she said to him, no, but I don't eat other animals. I don't eat other animals. In other words, we are part of the family of animals. And I don't eat other animals. It would not be fair. So our, our friend answered her in a very kindly fashion. But the correct answer to that statement is, why not, lady? Other animals do. In other words, if you believe you're part of the family of animals, take a bite out of his neck. What's the problem? If they do it without compunction, what's your problem? Well, you see, the reason she doesn't eat other animals is because she's human. That's why she understands this concept. Other animals, if she really genuinely believed she was part of the family of animals, she'd have a problem eating them. But there's such a confusion in this area. And therefore, and therefore the present position is that, it, that emotionally and at a level of natural reaction, there's a consciousness that there is such a thing as free choice, and therefore heroism and reward, negative actions and punishment that are blameworthy, and that's, how they, that's, that's the inner consciousness. But in the technical discussion, intellectual discussion, the position is moving further and further towards a position in which they will soon hold, it seems, unfortunately, that there really is no accountability and there is no free will. Now, from a Jewish perspective, let's switch now to our perspective and see how do we deal with this issue. How do we deal with the technical inputs? What is the Jewish answer to this? Let, let me give you an example. I'll give you two examples for your consideration. Two examples that I think put the problem very plainly. One example was provided to me by a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist who happens to be dealing with a, a young Jewish girl. This girl is 21 years old. She comes from a good family. She's intelligent. She's a nice looking girl. A wealthy family. Uh, no, ostens ostensibly no problems. But this girl has a particular psychological problem. Her problem is that when she, walk she, she walks into a supermarket and she puts sweets in her pocket. She has an inordinately strong compulsion which leads her 
a tremendous pleasure from taking sweets and put them in her pocket. Right? She has a tremendous difficulty resisting that. It's a well-known psych- psychoneurotic problem. She has a tremendous compulsion inducing her to do this, tremendous pleasure she feels when she does it, and a great difficulty resisting. She has as many sweets as she could possibly eat at home. She has all the money she needs to buy as much as she wants. This is what she does. This is her problem. Now, my friend discussed with me his problem. His problem is that she's in court now for the tenth time. The judge is asking my friend to testify about whether she's sane or not. If my friend testifies that from a psychiatric point of view she's sane, that means she's, she's, she's not psychotically detached from reality, she knows what's going on, she, she knows the difference between right and wrong, then they'll put her in jail. There's a sweet, sensitive Jewish girl. If they put her in jail, they'll prob- it'll probably kill her literally. On the other hand, he cannot tell the judge that she doesn't know what she's doing. She's not, she's not acting under a psychotic delusion. She's not having temporal lobe epilepsy where there's a complete absence. She knows exactly what she's doing. She knows it's wrong. She hates herself for it. She's undergoing therapy. She's making an effort. Now, we're faced with a genuine Jewish problem. From a secular perspective, there's much less problem with that than there used to be because they're moving further and further towards saying, well, this girl has some genetic, chemical, cultural, sociological, psychological, whatever it is, but it's a problem. And therefore, the extent that she has the problem, she's less and less responsible. Maybe not responsible at all. But what do we say from a Jewish point of view? Let's assume that this girl has a genuine... Let's assume she has a biochemical problem. Let's assume she has a genetic problem. Let's assume you could measure it and show it chemically and genetically. Would we say she's not free? She's not accountable? Would we say that? We wouldn't. We'd say she's accountable. But the question is, but what do you do about the compulsion? What do you do about the problem? You can't ignore that. You'd have to be a fool to say it's irrelevant. Of course it's relevant. So how do we resolve this from a Jewish point of view? Let me give you another example. A few years ago in in New York City, in, in Central Park, some youths from Harlem attacked a young girl. She was jogging through the park, and they attacked her brutally. They left her almost dead. They, they, they very seriously injured her. They were subsequently arrested, and they said they did it for fun. They did it for fun. Oh, justification. Now, that happens all the time in New York City, I'm sure. But what's unusual about this case is that during their trial, the defense raised a new argument. And the argument that was raised, and of course it's a symptom of this, of, of, it's a symptom of the psychological understanding of this generation. The novel defense that the, that the uh, counsel for the defense raised was this. They said that the reason that these youths should be acquitted is because they grew up in very disadvantaged circumstances. They came from the ghetto in Harlem. They had no role models. They were exposed only to violence. Their parents abused them and beat them and abandoned them. They had the very worst examples, and they were severely disadvantaged emotionally, psychologically, and in, and in every other way. And therefore, they're not accountable for their behavior. Now, that's a serious issue. If you say that, then there's no accountability, then there's no justice at all. On the other hand, if you hold them accountable for this act of violence, you'd have to be a fool to say that that disadvantaged upbringing is irrelevant. Of course it's relevant. None of you sitting in this room would attack a girl. I mean, I presume if you're an encounter, you know, if you're already at an encounter seminar on a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, I presume you've already, you know, transcended the desire to attack young girls jogging through the park. And I mean, I presume. None of you would do that. Why not? Because 
You'd be nauseated by the thought. You wouldn't be. You wouldn't be. That, that, that wouldn't represent a, a pleasure for you. You'd feel sick at the thought. Why? Because you're privileged. Surely you have a much more sensitizing and sensitive upbringing. You're exposed to much more refined things than that. Surely their problem is connected to their disadvantaged backgrounds. You'd have to be a fool to say it's not. So we have a serious problem. If you'll say that their background is relevant, then you're diminishing the responsibility. Are you with me? How do we handle this from a Jewish perspective? How do we say that the background and the compulsive elements, those non-choice elements, are relevant, and yet say that people are fully accountable? How do we say that? You agree we have a problem? Not sure. Let's see if we can analyze this from a Jewish perspective. It's a fundamental issue. It flies in the face of modern Western thinking. And it's at the root of Torah ideology, if you like. So let's try and work it out. Now, in order to do this, we'll have to, we'll have to examine the concept of free will from a Jewish perspective. And then perhaps we'll try and close the circle and come back to understanding these seminal Examples or example types in order to understand how the two problems or the two, two aspects of the equation are married together. <coughs> First of all, let's try and put into a nutshell Judaism's teaching about free will before we get to the mystical and spiritual dimension. Let's try and put it on the technical, mechanical, if you like, doctrinal level before we get up there into the root. If there's time, perhaps we'll try and look at that. First of all, our teaching is that free will is limited in two planes, if you like. Horizontally, if you like, we say that free will applies only in one narrow zone. That means in all the areas of your life, free will applies only in one narrow zone, and that is the moral area. Right? What we call the battle between right and wrong, between the higher self, the more refined self, and the lower, more animalistic, more sensual, more earthy, more lazy self, it's in the tension between those two poles of the personality where we, our conception is that's where free will operates. How wealthy you'll be, how healthy you'll be, all those other areas are really not amenable to free will. Each of those areas has an interaction with free will and a sensitive discussion is needed in each of those, but that's not our, we don't have time for that this morning. By and large, for purposes of this discussion, how wealthy you will be has nothing to do with your free will. That's in fact why we in Torah ideology, we say that you should spend most of your time learning. Why should you, you might as well spend most, most of your time doing, learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. If the, if, if the amount of money you'll earn this year is not proportionate to the effort you make, so why make more effort? Why make more effort? It's predetermined on Rosh Hashanah. And therefore the logical, the logical, the logical action for a Jew should be, you come and join us at the Jewish Learning Exchange, spend most of your day learning Torah with us, and you'll pay some minor attention to your your earnings because it won't make any difference anyway. How healthy you will be. Man, many people who do exactly the right moves from a health point of view become disastrously ill. And many people do the wrong moves and they are, well, they, they, they stay around for quite a while. Longer than some of the people who do the opposite. And sometimes even people who are ill there's no direct connection between illness and, and, and long, longevity, not necessarily. No, Issa Zalman Meltzer got married, talking about one of the Torah leaders of the previous generation. 
his wife was a, or his daughter of a great Torah family as well, when they were engaged to be married, she discovered that he had TB. We're talking about the turn of the century. Tuberculosis was a uniformly lethal condition, basically, at the time. She found out that this young man, who was a gifted Torah scholar, had TB. What was her response? She went to the, she went to the Chofetz Chaim. You know, as I understand, this, the, the, as I understand the, the mind. She went to the Chofetz Chaim, the leader of Torah jury at the time, to ask him for a blessing that this young man should live long enough that she should have one child from him. She didn't cancel the engagement. She went for a blessing that he should live long enough that they'd be able to have one child together. When she requested that, the Chofetz Chaim laughed at her. He said, some people are healthy and some people live long. That's what he said. Some people are healthy, some people live long. What do you think the connection is between the two? He lived to be a very old man, he says, had children with her. He lived to be an old man. Not necessarily connected. <coughs> Whom you marry. <coughs> Whom you marry. A large component of that is not part of your free will. For example, whom do you meet in order to be able to marry that person? You can't explore a relationship, yes? You cannot explore a relationship with every woman on earth, even though this generation is seriously trying. <laughs> there are certain limits to the possibilities that can be presented. That's not in your control. Our conception is that in the vast panorama of areas that face you, that you engage in your life, only in the area of the moral struggle, the Ramchal says clearly that you brought to the world for that. He says the three reasons you created is mitzvahs, to perform mitzvahs, avoid to serve, to stand strong in ordeals. Actually, all three are one. To stand strong in ordeals, to battle the lower temptations with a higher sensitivity, that's, that's where free will applies. And technical choices like which flavor dessert you'll choose, animals do that too. When a dog is faced by two bones, he chooses the bone that's more smelly, less smelly, whatever makes a dog choose a bone. That's how you function when you choose which flavor dessert you're going to have. It's not a meaningful free will, free choice. And therefore, firstly, our teaching is that the meaningful area of free will is only in the battle between the higher and the lower self. That's the first axiom. Of course, you, you note, by the way, that true to form, the secular world teaches exactly the opposite. And of course, it's a, it's a sensitive indicator that our lower self teaches that too. Where do we say that free will applies? Exactly where it doesn't. See, a man who gets very rich, they interview him on the radio. He says, sure, worked hard. So he get up at six in the morning when I was young and I worked for many hours. Now, the wealth is due to my own, my own effort. But when the man fails morally, what do they say? He says, I couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. It's a compulsion. It's beyond my control. They take responsibility in the areas that our Torah teaches you have no responsibility. And when you really have responsibility, you say, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. That's how you brought me up. You blame the parents. Now, in this area of free will, where it applies in the moral zone, in that battle between higher and lower self, uh, let's go a little bit further. There's a severe limitation, if you like, vertically. Now, this is a much more important point to understand. And here's the key to the problems that we began with. Your free will applies only at one narrow zone in the range of issues that face you. And this classic, this is a classic discussion. Rav Dessler is the one who makes it most explicit in our generation. And it lies in what he calls Nekudas HaBechira. Nekudat HaBechira. The point of free will. Let's explore this for a few minutes because it's absolutely central in understanding, in understanding our concept today. The point of free will means as follows. Now stay with me carefully. 
in the range of moral issues, in the range of moral, the spectrum of, of morality, if you like, of ordeals, potential ordeals that confront you, you are free only at one narrow level. Those things that are beneath that level, you're not free at. Those things are so base and crude and coarse that you wouldn't sink to those things anyway. They're beneath your dignity, spiritually and morally. And therefore, when you succeed at those lowly things, that's not called success. There's no, there's no, we do not consider that a moral victory. You wouldn't have done those things anyway. And things above your point of free will, things that are more refined, that are too refined, too difficult for you, you never do those things right. They're too difficult, they're too refined. And we don't consider that failure. Things that are too difficult, right? Areas of refined self-control that take great concentration, heroism, self-control, refinement, selflessness, sacrifice. Things that are far beyond your level, you are always doing those wrong. You're not holding there. But we don't call it failure because it's out of the range of your free will. I don't see any enlightened faces. Let's try, let's make it graphic. Each individual is holding at a point of free will, and incidentally, in different areas of your life, you could be holding at very different, you can different ranges of where the point of free will is. Some people have problem in one area, and have mastery in another area. Somebody else may have opposite. That point of free will determines where your battle is. Let's make it graphic. Imagine an individual who's brought up in the gutter. What a tremendously disadvantaged background, taught to mug. This person's entire daily occupation consists of mugging little old ladies, grabbing their purses and running off down the street. That's what he does. He's never been taught or exposed to anything more refined. He's brought up exposed only to that. That's how he sustains himself. That is his consciousness. Where's that person's range of free will? Where's his point of free will? That person's point of free will is in that range of activities. That means, the next time he's walking down the street, and a little old lady is hobbling along with her purse, and next to her on the pavement is a half a brick. His moral ordeal is, you know, will you push her over and take her money and run, or will you pick up the brick and smash her skull? And if he resists the temptation, if he comes to the moral, moral realization and sensitivity to realize that it's not necessary to kill her, and he allows her to live when he could have done the opposite. So if Desna says that he achieves a tremendous moral level, he performs a great act of self-control and of spiritual elevation. If Desna gives the example from the government of people who kill less than they would have otherwise, as being tremendous moral progress. Could be. Why? Because that's the range of his free will. Let's take another individual. Take a person who's trained himself for many years in Torah thinking and Torah practice, very refined, Talmud Chacham. What's his ordeal? His ordeal is he's working on his words. When he teaches his students, he, he takes great care that every word should be perfectly honest and accurate and not unnecessary. Speaks to his wife when he's under great pressure. He makes very great care, takes great care to make sure that every word is sensitive and considered and focused. Now he's working on controlling his thoughts. What's that individual's battle? His battle is when he's under tremendous pressure and there's a temptation to get a little angry or allow his thoughts to... It's a tremendous battle for him. Does he have a battle with him when he's walking down the street? Picture this great individual. He's walking on the way to the yeshiva to give his Torah shir. 
And as he walks along, lost in thought, a little old lady hobbles past with her, with her purse. And there's a half a brick on the pavement next to her. You know, how strong is the temptation to pick up the brick and smash her skull? When he gets to the next world, and Hashem says to him, what did you achieve in life? This great tzaddik. And he says, I never smashed any little old lady's skulls off. <laughs> you think they're going to say to him, shakach, ooh, <laughs> Not his battle. And conversely, and therefore you have to understand that when he walks past that woman, and he does not do her in, that's not called a victory. There's no, there's no, there's no spiritual battle, there's no achievement, it's irrelevant. It's out of his range of free will, it's not called a victory. And conversely, the individual who does that daily, his victories and losses are in that area. But to say an extra refined word to his wife, that's completely out of the range of his free will. He doesn't have a wife. He lives with some lady that he puts his cigarettes out in her ear. That's what he does. Is the point clear? In other words, your free will is, 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 is located where you're, where you're holding. And when he gets to the next world, they will not hold him accountable for not having thought more refined thoughts. And for, evinced, for not having evinced more self-control in every word that he said. It's not relevant. It wasn't possible for him. You judged in terms of the range of where your free will options are. And that's all. Is a picture emerging? Whose fault is it that your free will, your point of free will is down there or up there? Is it your fault? May not be. May not be. Whose fault is it that that individual whose profession is mugging little old ladies brutally daily, whose fault is it that that's his problem? Is it his? It may not be. It may be the fault of society, parents, grandparents, culture, sociology, psychology, even genetics and biochemistry. Possibly. But that's not the issue. The issue is what did you do at that level? How did you cope with the area where your point of free will is? And somebody with a much more refined upbringing. Given all the advantages and so forth. So he's not being tested by the lower things. And is it his fault? Is it his credit? No, may not be. Whose credit is it that this individual brought up morally sensitive, eating kosher food, keeping the mitzvahs of the Torah, with a conception of human dignity? And his parents. Maybe it's his parents. They get the credit. Not necessarily this individual. Where does he get credit? Only for the battle that's fought at that sensitive level. Only for the advance that's made in that area. There's had many applications. I mean, this idea is basic and it carries you through much of, of Torah thinking and much of life. You know, so you might have a young person today keeping mitzvahs, let's say. Eats kosher food. Why, why is he eating kosher food? He eats a kosher breakfast every day because he brought up that way. There's no credit for that mitzvah. No credit for the mitzvah. It's no battle. Who gets the credit? His grandparents who came over to a new country and they were tempted to drop it all and they sacrificed and they starved in order to maintain those values and not to work on Shabbos. Every time this child eats a kosher breakfast out of habit, his grandparents getting the credit for that. It's an irony that we experience in the, in the Chuba movement. Young people, not so young people, getting more involved in a Torah observant way of life. Very often the irony is this young person comes, they get more, more, more involved, they become more traditional, more observant. 
eventually they get to a stage where they start looking down on their parents. Parents are not observant, they're doing things that are trafe, that are not... <coughs> they're spiritual because they're keeping mitzvahs, etc. Now, irony is, you know why they followed that path? Very often. We see it among the South Africans all the time, the English very much the same pattern. Know why? Because their parents and grandparents, although they were not technically observant and they had missed it and lost it and dropped it, but they retained the structure of what it means to be a decent human being, to be a mensch. They taught their children with tremendous intensity and integrity and self-sacrifice. They taught them what intellectual honesty means, to follow your values, to live up, to be consistent. I'm not so sure who gets the credit. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. It could well be that this youngster found his way or her way <clears throat> to more observant Jewish identity because the parents gave them a tremendous sense of Jewish identity, of morality, of sensitivity, of responsibility. Not so clear. The concept in Jewish thinking is the reward and the spiritual growth always located, it's always located at the point where the free will effort was made. The consequences that are automatic, there's no reward for that. You know, I'll give you one example, just... You know, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, our sources say that the books of the living and the dead are opened. You, you familiar with that? The books of the living and the dead. People are judged every Rosh Hashanah. The, the spiritual question here, if you have a spiritually sensitive mind, the question is, why are the dead judged every year? By definition, there's nothing they could have done during the year. Our concept of the next world is that you cannot do anything there. Right? Once you leave your body, so you float with a momentum that's been built up during a lifetime, but you cannot do anything new. What sense does it make? Are you with me? If a person, if a person dies here, and the next year in time, in whatever time means in the spiritual world, they're judged again. And a year later, they're judged again. What sense does that make? By definition, they could not be any different here than they were a year before. They're not in the world. There's no tools to manifest to do anything. They could not have used their free will in any way. They couldn't have done anything. So what sense does it make to judge them again and again and again? By definition, they couldn't be different. You hear the problem? Anyone out there? You hear the question? Now, there are a number of answers to this fascinating question, but in today's terms, the answer is this. You know why this person's judged here differently than they judged here? Even though they did nothing, they were a passive soul in the spiritual world, entirely immobile. You know why? Because during this year of human experience, during this year in the world, many things took place that are the direct consequences of something that this person did back here when they were alive, this person died 500 years before. And before they died, back here they had a child. And they brought up their child with certain values. And the child had children, and the children had children. And now, 500 years later, there's 3,745 great-great-great-grandchildren in the world. And every activity of all, each and every of those great-grandchildren during this year is all accruing to the credit of this individual, because they're the original cause, you bring up your child with Torah and mitzvahs, let's say. And the child grows up habitually doing mitzvahs. Not, not because they chose it, they know it better. That's their norm. They don't get the credit, you get the credit. And they're 14 children. And they're 455 great-great-grandchildren. All living a morally sensitive way of life. Getting no credit for it. They're doing it out of habit. Who's getting the credit? You. And the converse too. 
If you make a mistake and you, you desensitize your children. Small thing. Father's talking on the telephone. The four-year-old's playing under the table. And the father says to his friend, well, it's not quite true, but tell him anyway. One comment in a business discussion. Little child hears under the table that it's okay to twist the truth when you need to. He grows up with a desensitized vision of what it means, the truth. And his children, and his children, and a a century later, there are 35 or 40 or 400 people in the world behaving a little bit more sharply and deviously than they should be. And you know who's squirming in pain for that? You know who's reliving that moment again and again and again? That's the grandfather who made that comment. He let it slip. He's the cause. Things attach themselves back to where the change of the cause. Where the cause is located. Where the free will difference is made, that's where the... And that's where the credit goes. Let me, can I, can I tell you a story? I know a man, uh, there's a Hasidic Jew, he lives in New York. I actually know him personally. This individual, just to show you how far an action can go, this individual was born, the story of his birth was like this. His mother was pregnant in the Warsaw Ghetto. His mother was pregnant in the Warsaw Ghetto. And she needed to see a doctor, gynecologist. She managed to sneak out of the ghetto and it found her way into the old city of Warsaw. And she managed to get to a doctor's office. There's a lady, a Polish lady doctor, a Catholic woman from the old Polish aristocracy. And the, she treated this Jewish patient. As the Jewish lady was about to leave the room, the doctor said to her, you know, if you go back into the ghetto, you know what will happen to you? So the Jewish woman said, yes, I know. So she said to her, look, come and stay with me. So the woman said, I can't leave my husband. So she said, go and bring your husband. So she said, I can't leave my family. So she said, bring your family as well to my house. So the woman found her way back into the ghetto and she said to her husband, this Catholic lady is offering to save our lives. So we're going to take our, you come with me and the family. The husband said, I can't leave my family. So they took his family too. They arrived at this lady's house with 13 people. Okay. She hid them in her attic for 22 months, including a time during which the Gestapo occupied the house. And for 22 months she took care of them, feeding them and carrying away their waste. After 22 months living in her attic without ever going out, she managed to get them out and across the border. And they all survived. They all ended up in America, as it happens in New York, and they all survived. A few years ago, a few years ago, one of the grandchildren, one of the grandchildren of one of those 13 people got married. And at the wedding in New York, at the wedding in New York, at the wedding itself were 200 people descended from the 13 people that she had saved. At that wedding, at that single event, were 200 people who were there at that wedding because of that woman's action. And they went back to Warsaw and they found her. And they brought her to be present at the wedding. They went back to Warsaw and they found her and they brought her. And this old lady sat present at a wedding with two and once somebody went up to her during the during the wedding they said to her why did you do it why did you do it why did you risk your life to save Jews and she drew herself up to a full frail height and she said because I read the Bible I read Genesis 
And in Genesis it says that when Sodom was about to be destroyed, Abraham negotiated with God. And he said to me, if there are 50 people, will you save the town? And God said, yes. There are 45, yes. There are 30, there are 10 people, you'll save the town? And God said, yes. And then she said, I thought there were enough of us to save Poland, and I was wrong. That's what she said. That's a merit to be jealous of. That was then. Who knows how many people there are now. And you know where those people trace themselves back? These people doing Torah, mitzvahs in the world, bringing families into existence, elevating the spirit. To one woman who did one particular action. So the free will goes back to the point where the difference was made. And that point is always relevant and relative to the level that you find yourself at. Incidentally, this is the reason why in Jewish education we do not compare children to each other. Because we don't have an absolute scale. The secular mode is an absolute scale. What mark did you get on the test? And did you do better than somebody else? In Jewish terms, that's completely irrelevant. What's, what's, what's relevant in Jewish terms is, did this child do as well as they could have done? Do you know that in a Torah school, we do not give children marks that are exposed to... We never read out marks, you know that? I'm sure you all send your children to schools where that is the practice. When you read out marks in class, so you read out marks. So there's an absolute standard. So one child got a better mark than another child, so they feel they've done better. But they may have done worse. They may have been more gifted and worked less hard. And the parents perpetuate the mistake. Of course, you would never do it. But some parents do. The child comes home and they say, we had a test today. The first thing the parent says, what mark did you get? The child says what they got. The parent says, what did everybody else get? <laughs> That's not education. That's destruction of personality. Have you ever been to a seven or eight-year-old? Have you ever been to a junior school prize giving? Ever been to one of those heartbreaking experiences? <laughs> what happens is, in those prize-giving ceremonies, there's always one obnoxious type. One precocious little individual who gets all the prizes. <laughs> That's what happens. And next to him is sitting a little seven-year-old. His heart is breaking. Who'd give anything to come home with a certificate or a prize, but didn't have the gifts? That's called education. That's called, that's called assassination of Jewish character. That's not the way to educate children. The way we educate children is we take a child, and if the child didn't live up to his ability, there's no whole part. There has to be a rigorous demand that the child should live up to his own standards. But to make him live up to somebody else's standard, that's relevant. That's why the Gemara says that in the next world, which is the real judgment situation, where the real marks are given, it's each individual's alone. The Talmud says that each tzaddik, each individual in the next world is entirely alone. From one perspective. It, it's true, it does say that husband and wife are eternally bonded into one being. It's good news for some of us, it's problematic for others. <laughs> but, that's only because husband and wife were one being before they were brought down to the world. <clears throat> but that, the point is that every individual is alone. You know what it means? You're not judged against somebody else. You know what you've shown in the next world? Is a raw, brutally, rigorously exposed vision of what you are and in front of you is what you could have been and what you should have been that's all the sensation of existence is measured in terms of what you could have been I'll show you somebody else that's their own problems our concept of judgment is that you stressed against what you should be and what you could be and therefore comparing children to each other in the school 
Our sources say that when children get a little older, certainly of a bar mitzvah, maybe 14, 15, there's no problem being unfair. When children reach that age, there's no problem. You can read out marks and you can be brutally unfair. And the reason is because life is unfair and they need to learn it. There's no problem with that. But not when they're six years old and they haven't the maturity to understand that they have their own uniqueness. This is clear? So, our concept of free will is that the point of free will, where that's located, is not up to you. It's not your credit and it's not your discredit. That's what's given. But where the point of free will is, there you're accountable. Of course, the next component of this discussion, without too much detail, just to complete the, the picture before we go back to our, our problem, the next component of the discussion is this, of course, that wherever your point of free will is, it's not immutable. As you act and decide and move, it changes. Every time you make a correct free will decision at a particular point of free will, you elevate the point. And your next ordeal is more refined and more difficult, but you're a stronger individual. Is this clear? If you play tennis in your club, and eventually you become the best in your club, you've got to go and play the champions of other clubs. No good playing the same people. There's, not, there's no game left. And when you play the clubs of other, the champions of other clubs and you can beat them, you have to play the national people. As you become better and you have more muscle and more prowess and more power, you have to deal with bigger adversaries. And that's why growth is unlimited. Because you climb the spectrum of the point of free will every time you move. When you pick up weights in the gymnasium, so you build muscle. The more muscle you build, the heavier weights you have to pick up in order to build more. And the way free will, the way the point of free will is structured in the spiritual world is that you always give an ordeal at your level of free will. And as you make an effort and overcome your level, well, you'd outgrow free will, wouldn't you? If your, if your negativity, if your drive to evil and to earthiness and to if the lower things, if that stayed as it was before, as you grew, you'd outgrow free will. The next battle would be a walkover. But that's not the way it works. As you become more powerful spiritually, so your next ordeal is more powerful. Why? So that you can be locked in battle with your own lower self always. That's the purpose of life. How does that work? How is it that as you grow spiritually, your negativity grows? What we call the Yetzirah, the own force of evil or force of destruction, force of... How does that grow when your positivity grows? The answer is because there's only one of you inside. This conception of having a positive force in you, a negative force, you have to understand what that means. It doesn't mean that you schizoid. There's only two personalities inside. Our definition of good and bad is only the direction in which energy is channeled. Let, let's try to make this clear. The Jewish concept is that there's no good and bad in the world at all. There's only more powerful and less powerful. Good or bad is how the more powerful or less powerful is channeled. Is this clear? No. You see, this thing over here is 220 volts yes, in that thing. There's enough current in there to run a few appliances and a few lights and so forth. On the other hand, if you put your fingers in, it's unpleasant. Unpleasant. It's probably not lethal, but it's very unpleasant. If you take the high-tension lines outside, 11,000 volts, there's enough power running through those things to power a whole city. But if you touch one of those, you'll be fried. The concept is the more power there is, the more good can be done with it. And in proportion, the more damage. The thing's not good or bad, it's only more, more, intelli more intelligence, more money. The person has more money, is that good or bad? 
It's neutral. It's just more powerful. If they use the more money in a more positive direction, they generate more good, but in exact proportion they can generate havoc. Let's say a person is powerful and charismatic and, and influential as a personality. That's a gift. Is it good or bad? Hence why it's useful. If it's used to influence and uplift, it's positive. If it's used to... Is the point clear? In your own character, you don't have good or bad, you simply have a more powerful, more together, more unified, more cogent, more cohesive personality. And the question is, which direction do you take it? Do you become a great leader and uplift, or you can become a leader of, to destruction, people to destruction. And therefore what happens is, as you flex your muscle, spiritually, and you overcome, and you grow in free will, you become a bigger man. You become a bigger person. So your negativity automatically is the same, it's the same power, the same energy. And at this new level of power, in which direction will you go? Even new free will battle. And yesterday's free will battle passes out of existence. Because you've outgrown it. The person says, steps out of his office for lunch. He's about to cross the road into the, the seafood deli. You know where they serve the shrimp on lobster with the, you know, the laced with the bacon thing and the cheeseburger. <laughs> so, yeah, that's been, he'd been eating that lunch for many years and he, he loves it. But as he's about to step in, he says to himself, you know, maybe there's something to kosher food after all. And I said, it's a Jewish thing and the Kabbalists say that it sensitizes you, you don't kosher food, it contaminates your sensitivity. Maybe I should walk into this kosher deli next door doesn't like that food. doesn't speak to him. What happens? Stands on the pavement there, shaking and sweating for half an hour. Finally, walks into the kosher establishment, eats a kosher lunch. Tremendous elevation. Tremendous elevation. A spiritual value overcame an earthy sensuality. Tremendous control of free will, that was. What happens the next day? Steps out for lunch. Same battle. Not as hard. Not as difficult. Eats a kosher lunch. The Gemara says, after you've done that three times, forget three, after you've done it a few times, says the Talmud, no more reward. Because now it's habit. Every time this individual walks out and eats a kosher lunch, out of habit, no reward. There's the benefit of the kosher food. And there's the voiding of the intrinsic damage of the unkosher food. But there's no battle of the self, and there's no more reward. He's outgrown it. Is this, is this, if you're the world all-stars martial arts champion, and you're striding down the beach, you know the characters who walk down the beach with the women tripping off their biceps. And as you're walking down the beach, a three-year-old walks up and punches you in the knee. And let's say, you know, you, you forget all your spiritual, you know, self-control things, you tear the kid apart and grind him into a paste. <laughs> And when you get home, you know, your, your mother says, you say, yes, you won a battle today. You know, of course you didn't win a battle, that wasn't a battle. Or if you, conversely, let's say you play the world champion tennis, the world champion tennis player, let's say. And during the whole match, you never see the ball at all, ever. <laughs> then you come home and you're very dejected, you say you lost today. You didn't lose, you didn't play. <laughs> the point should be clear. Free will applies only at the place where you're currently battling. And that point is not, you may not be responsible. You're responsible for lifting it. Let's go back to our problem. 
Let's take this young girl. Can you see the answer yourself now? It's clear, isn't it? This young girl who has a compulsion. She had tremendous pleasure from stealing sweets in the supermarket. Is it her fault? Maybe not. Maybe not. Where's the fault lie? Maybe genetic? Maybe biochemically? Maybe. Maybe it's cultural, sociological, psychological. Maybe her father said something when she's three and her mother did something when she was four. Maybe. Is that her fault? No. But whether she puts out her hand to take the sweets or not, that's her accountability. The fact that this battle is her area of free will may not be her fault. But whether she succeeds or fails in the moment of crisis at that point of free will, that's up to her. And if she takes the sweets, Jewish law says she is accountable. She's less accountable. You have to understand here, there's two, there are two, there are two dimensions of, of, of Jewish law here. One is technical in a base thing. That means, will she be held guilty for stealing? The answer is yes. Full force of the law, 100%. What's the Jewish punishment for stealing, by the way? We'll put her in jail. She has to pay it back. That's what she has to do. And if she can't, she has to go work for them. Put a person in jail and kill them. But you have to pay it back. But in the spiritual world, she's far less accountable than somebody else for whom that was not such a difficult battle. That means the punishment spiritually, the lack of growth, the, the, the depressing effect spiritually is much less for her because it was a difficult battle. Are you with me? And that's why when I go to the next world and they say to me their tests, what did you achieve in life? And if I say I never stole sweets in the supermarket, again, they're not going to say, Shukur, well done, because it's not my pro- I've got my own problems, I can assure you. <laughs> but that, that doesn't happen to be one of them. And therefore, if one of us would succumb to such a thing, we would be held far more accountable. Rabdesla says the fact that you sit here right now, you're getting reward right now for not running out into the street and stabbing people. Very little reward. Very little. Because it's very, very small temptation. It's the bottom rung of your potentiality. That will be the messianic reality when the Mashiach comes. There will be virtually no free will left. You'll be an autonomous human being. But it will be so obvious what to do. And so odious to do the wrong thing. That it will be ridiculous to do it. So your free will will be shrunk. You have free will only in proportion to the darkness that you inhabit. And therefore the Jewish answer is, even if that girl has a genuine issue, provided it's not psychotic, that means provided she still has what we call us, that means the ability to control herself, whether it's difficult or easy. Difficult or easy only means that's the shifting sands of where the point of free will is. The fact that it's a battle for her is where her free will is located. The fact that it's a difficult battle means that's where her free will is located. And that may not be her fault. But what she does at the moment of ordeal... She's accountable. And don't tell me that the genetics and the biochemistry, etc., mean that it's unstoppable. But her hand goes out like this and she's trying to... That's not the way it works. Addiction, not even addiction, even chemical addiction, does not mean that it's impossible to resist. It just means that there's an inordinate drive, tremendous pleasure. It doesn't mean... I can tell you as a physician, I've seen people go through cocaine or heroin withdrawal voluntarily. No question, that's an addiction. And the withdrawal can be lethal. It can literally be lethal. And people go through that sometimes. There's a heroin lying next to them. And they do not take it. With tremendous compulsion to take it. But it can be done. Once you cross the red line and there's no dice, the person's a child, for example, or mentally, mentally 
non-functional to a certain degree, so then there's no accountability. But as long as there's the possibility, no matter how difficult. And similarly with those men, those young men who attacked that girl, is it possible that the fact that that was a temptation for them is not their fault? But it's the fault, whose fault is it that they felt that their idea of fun is brutalizing some young, young girl jogging through the park? Whose fault is it? I don't know, maybe it's their parents, maybe it's the fact that they had no parents around, maybe it's the grandparents, maybe it's society, maybe it's New York City, maybe it's the movies, maybe it's all of those. All of the above, none of the above, some of them, I don't know. May not be their fault. But when they went out and did it, when they were tempted to do it, they're accountable. They had enough moral sensitivity to know they wouldn't like it done to them, right? Right? That they knew, that they understood. What is considered crossing the red line, that is totally aberrant behavior, that's not... So it depends. If a person walks around, let's say this person walks around throwing stones through people's windows. Totally wantonly throws rocks through people's windows all the time. Does that mean that he's not sane? Depends. Does he throw rocks through his own windows? If he throws rocks through his own windows, he's insane. He's exempt. If he only throws rocks through your window, he's guilty. Is the point clear? This is the beginning analysis of the question of free will, where it's located on a technical scale. In other words, the secular world teaches that there are compulsive elements, there are coercive elements, conditioning elements, let's say, that they are regarding more and more as being deterministic. And our view is that those things are 100% relevant. But all they do is, they shift the point of free will, that's what they do. They make the ordeal different for you than it is for me. And some people's ordeal may be abysmally low, some people's area of free will, and it may not be their fault. And it may be somebody else's fault. And that person takes the rap in this world or the next world, no question. And that's why we as parents, our job is to bring children into the world the highest level of free will that we can. It makes no difference to them, because they'll only be judged in terms of the range of what was possible for them. But it makes a difference to you. If your children are struggling with an extra degree of sensitivity, so, their battle will always be, they will always be judged. What percentage of their potential did they manifest? That never changes. But the fact that their set of potentialities is more elevated in the absolute sense, it's your credit. That elevates the Jewish people, that elevates the world in an absolute sense. Now, there's another and deeper discussion, deeper part of this discussion, which goes into a much more refined and spiritual discussion of the source, but I promise to leave questions, so you have an option now. You can either ask questions or we can discuss that area. In other words, we can either listen to you or to me. <laughs> Are there any burning questions? And if not, I'll try and share that insight with you. Let me share with you you have energy for a few more minutes? Or? Let's look at the next component of this discussion and try and see if we can fill it out. Perhaps a more thought-provoking level, which requires a different mode of thought. And that is that free will lives, as we remarked in the beginning, at that root of consciousness that has no root itself. The word ratson, which means desire or volition, that tool that is used to axe down on this side of a decision, of an ordeal, a choice, or that side. That word, ratson, the root of the word is rats, which means movement, all outflow of movement. 
the numerical equivalent of Rotson, is Bakor, meaning the source. It is the source. The definition of a source is that which is the point of origin and has no prior point of origin. Otherwise, that would be the source. Right? Yes? If we call free will, the faculty of free will, volition or will, if we call that the source, we mean that you cannot look for a cause or a source of that. Is that clear? Otherwise, that would be the cause. And that's why when you ask, in the final crunch of an ordeal, given my level of free will, that this is now my, cho- my, my area of choice, whether I cause it or not, why do I choose the lower option and fail or the higher option and succeed? Why do I do that? Illegitimate question. It's because I chose. That's me. That is the I. That is the self. The secular world will try to answer that question. Well, he chose it because... And the current way of answering that question is, well, because it was, the pull in that direction was stronger. Isn't that what they say? When a person's caught in a moral choice, they can go this way or that way. And they went that way. What's the secular answer to the question, why did they choose? Well, that was the more attractive option. It pulled them more strongly. Can you see that that's, that's invalid? If you say that, you're saying that you always respond to the stronger of the pulls. Just like a metal object is pulled by two magnets. If the one magnet is stronger, it moves that way. If you shine a light on a plant from one side, it moves towards the stronger. Did it have any choice? No, it responded to the vector, the final sum of the vectors. Is this clear? So if you're going to tell me that every time I respond to, in a free will ordeal, whichever way I respond, you're telling me that I'm responding to the stronger appeal, the one that pulls me more strongly. You're denying free will. Let me try and put this a bit more strongly. A bit more clearly. Let me share with you Rabdesa's analysis. It's going to be a long day. Let me share with you Rabdesa's analysis of this question. It's a good one, thanks. He says this. If two options attract me, one attracts me strongly. Please stay with me carefully. One option attracts me strongly, and one option attracts me weakly. In order to support the notion of free will, you have to say that a person can be attracted immensely strongly in one direction, and very weakly in another, and they're free to choose the weaker attraction. Which is strange, and, and perhaps paradoxical, but you have to say that. If you say that a person is attracted in one direction strongly, a very strong motivational attraction, and the other direction weakly, and you say that the person will always follow the more attractive option, and every decision they make you explain away by saying that must have been stronger, you say they're not free. Is this plain? So we have to say that you can have an option between a strong attraction and a weak one and follow the weaker attraction. Well, that needs explanation. <laughs> How do you do that? If one direction speaks to you very strongly and one speaks to you in a very, very puny and weak sense, well, well how do you do that? First of, all, first of all, let me try and show you that it's true. First of all, philosophically, intellectually, can you see that it must be like that? Let me try and show you that it's true, and then we'll try perhaps to see how it works. Let's try and construct here an ordeal. Let's try and build for ourselves in our imagination. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's take someone motivated very strongly in one direction and motivated very weakly in another. Let's make it as strong as we can, the distinction between the two. I would suggest that such an ordeal would be like this. Let's take on the one hand the strongest motivation that there could be, which is acknowledged in psychology to be self-preservation the desire for life, in a normal, mentally normal individual. Would you agree that would be a contender for a strong motivation? Reasonably? 
Let's pose against it, let's posit against it a very immature and pathetically weak attraction. Let's call it the attraction for five seconds of pleasure. Physical pleasure. Would you agree that that's very weak compared to the desire to live? Would you agree? Well, let's take a smoker who knows that if they give up cigarettes and throw it away, they live. Healthy, normal, alive. Or they can smoke. And what do they get out of it? Five seconds of pleasure before they feel the cold hand of death closing in and feel like a failure and feel how they've blown it again. Isn't it? So, are you going to tell me they're addicted? That's why? Addiction doesn't mean that there's a is an unstoppable force. All it means is that the pleasure speaks more strongly. That's what it means. That there'll be more pain in not doing it. That's what it means. Would you agree that... Now we're talking... You see, don't tell me... See, if your mind works like this, well, well, one second. If the person wants to live and they want to smoke and they end up smoking, it must be there was a stronger attraction. It means that they don't really want to live that much, probably. It's a person with a death wish. Or... That cigarette must loom very large. Or you say to yourself, well, they rationalize. They say to themselves that the cigarette won't really harm me. So I've had patients who they wake up and cough a pool of blood on the floor and say, I must start smoking filters. <laughs> not talking about that. As it happens, I mean, I had a professor of pathology at medical school. I had a professor of pathology who was a, a lady who happened to be a national expert at lung disease. She taught us post-mortem dissection and she smoked. She would take a slice of human lung, fresh, put it in your head and say, Doctor, what's wrong with that? <laughs> okay. This lady was not rationalizing. She knew exactly what... She died a couple of years later. She died of an alcohol problem, but that's something else. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that when you, when, you talk, when, you, when you talk about somebody, you're not talking about rational, you're talking about somebody who knows exactly what's happening. There's a desire to live, be healthy, strong desire, and the desire for a few moments of pleasure. Doesn't choose the wicked desire. If you're not convinced, perhaps I'll try and give you a stronger example. It happened to me personally. I was a junior intern in a surgical ward. We had a patient, and I can't think of a strong example. If this doesn't convince you, there's no hope for you. This was a man who was 45 years old, and he had a certain vascular disease. It's known as Burgers disease. It's not that uncommon. The people who have this disease are exquisitely sensitive to the nicotine in cigarette smoke, and it causes closure of their major blood vessels. They often end up losing digits. They can lose limbs in extreme cases. What happens is that the nicotine causes a, a, a closing down of their blood vessels and eventually stops the blood flow to their extremities, and they can lose genetic, uh, genetically conditioned um, situations. This man was 45 years old, he was an engineer, highly intelligent, and he had this disease. He came into our ward with a threatened leg. He had a blue leg, blood was not getting through, and we informed him that if he carried on smoking, he would lose his leg. He knew exactly what was happening, he knew much more about the disease than we did. Intelligent person, researched it, but he liked smoking. And he knew that, now you have to understand what's going on here, Sebastian wants to live, right? He wanted to live, be a man, walk, play with his children. So he takes a cigarette and he says to himself, well, I could just do that and walk, and live, or 
Five seconds of pleasure. My leg? Lose it? He carried on smoking. We had to amputate his leg. The next time I saw him was a year later. He was being wheeled down the hospital corridor in a wheelchair with no legs and still smoking, but danger to an arm. Okay. Now, now, one moment, one moment. What are you going to tell me? That the desire for the pleasure of the cigarette each time is stronger? No. Very hard to support that notion. Which means that it appears that it's possible to be in a situation where you pull strongly one way and very weakly another way, and you can go for the weaker attraction. Now the question is, how does that work? How does that work? How is that possible? What's the mechanism? And Augusta says like this, now, now note carefully, we're not attempting to explain what makes you choose that. That's you. But what we want to explain is, how is it possible to choose that? How does that happen to an individual? How could you possibly do that? And his explanation is as follows. It's based on the mystical teachings but I'll try and show you how those mystical sources manifest themselves in, in practicality. The next four minutes. The answer is like this. The reason that you can choose a weak desire, listen, listen carefully because it's remarkable in its beauty, the perception that, 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 the total perception of this description, its sensitivity and understanding of the mind, is re absolutely remarkable. And again, I will not be able to show you this technically, but you, you'll recognize it in yourself if you've ever lived. You know that the mystics say that that real genuine truth is not something you need to learn. You only need to recognize. You should not have a sensation that you're learning it. You should have a sensation that you're recognizing something that you knew was like that. I am as That's what they say. The reason is like this. In the root of the mind that we call Rotsin, that root of consciousness, it's only possible to want one thing at a time. That's the secret. You can only want, not that you, you, you can have many desires fighting to be the one, but you can only be one thing that activates action, that motivates action. That means in that throne room, that control room, that control zone that we call Rotsling, it is entirely unitary. The mystics say that it's somewhere around here, not where the baby's skull is open, and where there's a connection that's forged with the higher world. That place is unitary, and this root of decision, the root of Rotsling, at the moment of exploding into action, there can only be one thing there at a time. You can't explode in two directions at the same time. You can only... Why is it like that is a lengthy discussion. But very just to refer to it, why is the root of consciousness single? Because the human being is formed at Salam al-Kim in the image of Hashem. And just like he is one, just like he is one, the root of consciousness must be unitary. But that needs a fuller discussion. But let's just take its practical application. You can only want one thing at a time, meaning you can have many desires, two desires or many, fighting to be the one that gets in. But only one can get in when you activate that. Can you feel that? You can have many things attempting to be the... Each one's convincing you, do this, do this, do this. The symptom of that battle, paralysis. You don't do one and then do the other and do the... You stand there while each one attempts to convince you. But the gate remains closed. And sooner or later you open the gate and one of them, it doesn't matter which one it is, if you open the gate to a weak one, as it gets in, that's all you are. If, is this clear? If you have an explosive with a fuse, it doesn't matter if you light the fuse with a match or a flamethrower. Can you see that? Once you light it, there's an explosion. If you have a nuclear power reactor with a switch, somewhere in the control room of that thing there's a switch. 
It doesn't matter if a big, hefty, 250-pound brute throws a switch, or a little baby climbs up on the console and flicks the switch. It makes no difference. Once you hit the switch, the thing explodes. Is this clear? And therefore, the battle is, the battle of free will is, which desire will you let in? But it makes no difference what the size of the desire is. Once you allow it in, it hits the unitary root of all that you are. When this person takes that cigarette and he says to himself, shall I live or smoke? Live or smoke? And finally, in that moment, he becomes one big cigarette. That's all there is. At that first moment, can you see that? There's no choice there. There's no, at that moment, he is that thing. And then a few seconds later, the dust settles. Smoke clears, if you like. And then he realizes that he's done it again and lost it again. But in that moment, there was only that thing. And that's how people commit suicide. You know, like. Miller, one of our bestest great Talmudim, I mean, just to give you a, a graphic, tangible illustration of how this decision-making process goes and how you... That's just to make it a little bit more... You know, we have to give ourselves tangible examples. The example he gives is... is um, when you go for a swim in the water that's very cold. I mean, it's, in, any place around here probably in England, I imagine. I mean, for, for those of us who come from the old country, it's like swimming at Clifton. Right? I mean, not that we do that anymore, but the water there is very cold. Extremely, dangerously cold. Right? So you come a long way for the swim, and your friends are all sitting on the beach, and you walk down to the water, and you put your foot in, and two toes fall off. <laughs> but you, know, you know the feeling. You say to yourself, this is ridiculous, you say. This is dangerous. I'm just getting out of here. And then you say just going to go in. So what happens is you walk in a little bit further and one of your ankles freezes solid. So you say, well, I'm, I'm leaving. Then you look back and you say, they're all watching you. You came a long way for this swim. So what happens is usually you go in very, very, very slowly until it sort of gets above your knees, one kneecap falls off, you know. And usually the process is taking a great deal of time. You usually end up with the water somewhere around here. That's usually what happens. Now, after that, there's no going slowly. And you're aware that there's only one way to do this now. So you stand there and you say to yourself, I'm just going to go under that water. And you say, I'm just getting out of here. So I'm just going down. And the symptom of the battle is paralysis. You don't go up and down, up and down. <laughs> you stand there paralyzed while both, both of them fight to be... Can you feel this? Isn't that what happens? And it can take a long time can take a long time. And each of them sort of speaks to you and sort of convinces you, but you don't open the gate. And the other one speaks to you. And sooner or later, you just go down! Don't you? What happens? Just open the gate and that's all you were. You can go up and down, up and down, up and down. <laughs> it's very hard to put these things into words because they live in a, higher, in a higher zone. But that's the nature. Free will is opening the gate into the secret root of the mind, the secret root of consciousness, which we call volition. And that opening of the gate is no explanation, it's up to you. But when you open that, that, that trap door, that gate, whichever one gets in is all that you are at that moment. And it makes no difference if it's strong, weak, logical, illogical, long-term consequences, no long-term, makes no difference. It could be the most puerile and puny and pathetic and frivolous few seconds of nothing on which a lifetime will be, that's been built will be destroyed. Or it could be massive and sensible and etc. respectable. Makes no difference. Who causes this one to go in and not that one? You. You. Why did this one speak so strongly and this one speak so weakly? 
not your fault. Maybe it was your parents, your upbringing, etc. Maybe that one's fault. Maybe to me that one would be this one's strong. Your fault? No. But which one did you let in at that difficult and dangerous moment? That's up to you. Okay, we'll stop there. For you. Sure.